Now here's the amazing thing. I'm sure that when, um, yep, hurry, hurry, hurry. Can you imagine that back when Jesus was talking with his disciples and the kids were just running everywhere, birds are singing, there's all kinds of stuff going on. I'm sure Peter was there listening and then Peter's just listening to Jesus all of a sudden like, squirrel. Okay, and then back to Jesus. I'm sure he had all those kind of distractions going on. Um, but what an incredible thing to gather together in the midst of God's creation. The birds are going to be chirping while I'm preaching. Wind is going to be blowing. Sun is shining. And uh, hopefully that's all that's happening. Hopefully nothing's dropping. Again, check where you're sitting. Feel free to move now while you can. Yesterday, uh, I had the privilege of hanging out with my uh, family in Indiana. My nephew got married. And so we went back to Indiana to visit. And I sat with my dad for a little bit. And um, dad's 84. His, uh, his cancer is still getting the best of him. He's a little upset because he's losing his hair a second time again now with the radiation and the chemo and all that. Um, but he pulled out his iPhone. Seriously, 84 years old, an iPhone. That just doesn't sound right, okay? And uh, so he was checking on his phone and saying, Dad, you need to get a few more apps on here. So he put on the Bible app. So if you have your Bible, open up your Bibles. If you don't have your Bible and you got the Bible app, press that now. And I was showing him how, because my dad loves to listen to the Bible and not just uh, read. And so uh, I showed him, Dad, check this app out. You can actually look at Scripture, and then you can push this little button right here, and you can listen to it as well and read along. And oh, he loved that. And so uh, we had a good time figuring those kind of things out. But of course, at the wedding, Dad has to be Dad. He still has it. My nephew, who got married yesterday, uh, this is how you know we're related to the stumps. He was playing softball and um, took a softball to the mouth. Yeah, you know, you're thinking of Carter, right? Okay. So, knocked out his front tooth, uh, broke it actually, messed up his lip, pushed back some of his teeth. This is two weeks before his wedding. And so, he quickly went to the dentist. His sister's a dental hygienist, so she went in and helped. And, fixed him up and he looked really good, but this is my dad. My dad goes to my nephew and says, Adam, on the day of your wedding, if your mouth is still messed up, I can step in for you when you have to kiss the bride. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. So yesterday, last night at the reception, we're at this, uh, it's called Amish Acres, where we had the reception, big barn, and uh, our family is seriously in the back corner, and my dad is in the furthest table back. And he got the microphone. They did some toasts and talks and all that kind of stuff. And he asked for the microphone. They took it back to him and he said, Adam, you know, I offered to kiss your bride in case you weren't healed up. And now I see how that I stand with you. You put me in the furthest table away from your bride the night of the, the wedding. So uh, he still has it. He still has it. Okay. In your Bibles, you're turning to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. First book, New Testament, nine chapters in. I'm not going to read verse by verse. I'm going to give you a quick summary. I want you to picture this, okay? Because Jesus had climbed into a boat, went across the lake, went back to his hometown. So just picture coming across the Wauseon Reservoir, okay? Get out your boat, go for a little walk now. You've ended up here at Homecoming Park. Some people brought to him a paralyzed man on a mat. Jesus looked at this paralyzed man and he said this, stand up, pick up your mat and walk. Now you have to understand there's a discussion with the religious leaders going on, but this man jumped up, went home, and I love what the Bible says, 
Fear swept through the crowd as they saw this happen. Now listen to this next part. And they praised God for sending such a man with this kind of authority. Little did they know that this man was the son of God. So Jesus now walks along after that incident, and he comes along Matthew, a tax collector. Now remember, people hated tax collectors. Didn't like the government, didn't like tax collectors, thought they were the scum of the earth. Okay? Those were the words they used. Jesus comes up to Matthew and invites him to follow him. Matthew, why don't you come follow me instead? Matthew gets up and follows Jesus. Now Jesus is criticized for healing the paralyzed man and eating with the tax collector, the political scum, as they use that word. And Jesus reminds his disciples, hey, 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 I'm here for the sinners, not for the righteous. I'm here for those who are sick, not those who are healthy. And then the leader of the synagogue came before him and kneels before him and says, my daughter just died but you can bring her back to life again if you just lay your hand on her. You're the faith of somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus. Jesus goes to revive this girl, and as he goes to revive this girl, a woman with a bleeding disorder who's been had this for 12 years, she touches the fringe of the robe of Jesus, just hoping that touching Jesus, she'll be healed. Guess what? She is. And Jesus stops. Oh, somebody touched me. I, you know, okay, I don't know how. Okay, I do know how. He's Jesus. I told you. You're coming in. He's Jesus. So he knows that somebody touches the robe. We used to do this thing back uh, when I was a youth pastor. Landon's gone. I can share this with you so he doesn't dream up the idea again. We would take clothespins. Some of you might remember this. We took clothespins and we would come up behind people as we're talking and we would just put the clothespin on the fringe of their shirt or if there's any kind of bagginess in their clothes and we would put a clothespin on them. Don't ask me why, we just did it for fun. We did it in a youth group with each other. But the problem is that it sort of spread. We actually went to a Mud Hens baseball game and, you know, poor innocent strangers who are walking around with clothespins on the back of their shirts. And we had one girl come up and say, I got somebody. Well, who did you get? I don't know, some big guy. Well, can you point him out to me? That guy. Oh, Tony Clark, the first baseman for the Toledo Mud Hens. Yeah, he's got a clothespin on the back of his jersey right now. Good job. It got out of hand, though, one night at a church meeting on a Sunday night when they were taking votes and the ushers were walking down and an usher walked by me with a clothespin on the back of his suit. And I was like, all right, this has gotten out of hand. We've got to put an end to this. We had no clue that those clothespins were on the back of us, but to hear Jesus, somebody just barely touches the fringe of his robe, and he says, some power has gone from out me. Somebody's touched me. And this lady on her knees looks at Jesus and now she's probably afraid she's going to get in trouble. And Jesus looks at her and says, my daughter, my daughter. He uses a term of endearment and love. Incredible thing. He gets, uh, he leaves there and goes to the leader's home, interrupts the funeral music, and, sh and, uh, and brings this young girl back to life. Amazing thing. Jesus uh, gets home or leaves the girl's home. Now two blind men are shouting out. Son of David, have mercy on us. Guess what they want? To, they want to see again. Does he heal them? Yes. Why not? 
It's just a typical day in the life of Jesus. When they left, a demon-possessed man who couldn't speak was brought to Jesus. So Jesus cast the demon out, and he began to speak. The crowds were amazed, and this is what they said. Nothing has ever happened like this in Israel. You better believe it. Nothing has ever happened like this in Israel. Just another day in the life of Jesus, right? Now, how do you sum up that chapter? That's chapter 9. How do you sum that up? I want you to just take 30 seconds and think about it. You're writing for the Jerusalem Chronicle, okay? You're writing the article. What's the headline of your newspaper today in the life of Jesus? What would that headline be? Just think about it. Jesus rocks. This world's a mess, but Jesus cleans it up. What title would you have? You know, I think about that there's so much wrong, I think Jesus could have walked the planet, performing miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle and taking care of everything, right? He is the Son of God, amen? Look at the person next to you and say, Jesus is the Son of God. Absolutely. The only Son of God. John said this, he writes the Gospel of John and at the very end of the book, in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John says this, The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in the book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you'll have power to live for Him. John concludes his book saying, Jesus is the Son of God. You must believe that. But you know, instead of Jesus doing it all by himself, and Jesus could have, right? That was just one day, you know, he's out there doing all these things. He could walk through Wauseon right now, stop at every house, visit every person, heal all the sick, cast demons, you know, help blind see. He could do it all. He could do it all. But you know what the amazing thing is? He invites us to join him. Instead of him walking around doing that, he says, you know what? I'm going to invite my people to join me in reaching others. Look now in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. You read along with me. Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who's in charge of the harvest, ask him to send more workers into the field. I want you to look at that passage and think about this. Jesus went out into all the cities and villages, teaching and healing, performing incredible miracles. And this verse uh, basically sums up the first 30, 34 verses. It sort of brings it all to a head here. And it's in Jesus then encounters the depth of human need. He was moved with compassion for them. He was not unfeeling. He was not passive. He was not apathetic towards these people and their problems. He looked at everybody that he had seen and looked at people he had healed. And he looked at the people who were now coming. And his stomach turned. When you and I look around, 
and we see the world's mess. Maybe we see our own mess. We look at our family. We look at things going on. You know, I had a great time at our wedding yesterday, but I still look at our family, and I know our family's a mess. Whether it's disease, whether it's divorce, whether it's, it's just the loneliness, depression, discouragement, we got it. We all have these little messes around us, and some of us live in bigger messes than others. But what is our reaction to that? Do you really feel like helping others when all you feel like, I just get critiqued when I try to help others. I get, you know, I try to do my best, and I feel like my best just isn't good enough, so why even try? And you're not sure where to start. Maybe you say, well, why should I even try? What can one act of love accomplish for anybody or anything? You know, in the previous verses, Jesus was terribly and unfairly criticized for what he did. He reached out to help somebody. He took a man who was paralyzed. He's, he helps him, heals him, gets up, walks, and runs off, and he's criticized for that. He reaches a tax collector with everything's about money and, and, and cheating, and Jesus comes to him and says, I want you to be one of my disciples, and he's criticized for reaching out to him. Yet it didn't make him stop his work. He didn't say, oh, they're saying terrible things about me. I, I can't make anybody happy. That's the last time I healed somebody. They didn't show any thankfulness. Jesus didn't do that. He looked at this world and he had compassion on them. The word that's used here to mean moved with compassion is the strongest word that they could find in Greek language to mean to have pity on somebody. It goes right to the stomach, right to the gut, to the deepest parts of a person. And Jesus looked at those he encountered and described them as weary, and scattered, like sheep having no shepherd. What Jesus did here describes what man is apart from God. Jesus says, there's a bunch of sheep, no shepherd. They need a shepherd. They need somebody to lead them, to guide them, to direct them, to care for them. What Jesus says is he's looking at these people and say, these people are in a lot of trouble, prone to wander, to get lost, to get in trouble. Without a shepherd, we lack proper care and direction. How many of you in here have uh, had 4-H, you've had a farm animal, you've taken care of it 4-H before, raise your hand. Quite a few of you. Now let me ask you this, especially I know your family, you've got it quite a bit. What would it be like if you all took off on vacation, nobody took care of your farm animals for two months? Would it be a mess? Yeah. It'd be a mess. They need somebody to take care of them. And Jesus looked at his people and all the people that were coming across the fields. You know, you watch them coming down the hill. You watch them coming across the grass out of the... And you look at them and they're saying, they need somebody. Jesus just looked at them and said, they need somebody. They're like sheep without a shepherd. This troubled our Savior. The state of things suggests two pictures here. A neglected flock of sheep and a harvest going to waste for lack of reapers. One author said this, both imply not only a pitiful plight of the people, but a blameworthy neglect of duty on the part of the religious guides. That author is saying, you know what, it's unfortunate what's going on here, but those who were the religious leaders weren't even taking care of the people, and that's troublesome. I was recently at a camp last week, a leadership camp in, in Cleveland, and after the chapel service was over, and I was talking about the prodigal son, and and the father, and it's a beautiful story in Luke. 
finished with chapel, they stood up to sing, and I went to the back, and this big junior high school student, very athletic looking, comes up with tears in his eyes and says, can I talk to you? Yeah, and so we went out in the hallway and we talked. And he shared with me what was going on in his life. I just got done talking about a father's love. And it hit him hard. Because he didn't have a father. His father's down in Florida trying to make money professional wrestling. Abandoned him when he was a little kid. And now he comes home and there's his mom. Mom brings in a different guy every so often. Guys just come in and out of his house. And he looked at me and said, I long for a father. We talked and we prayed. Talked about a heavenly father. Talked about men that could mentor in his life. And he went back to his group after we prayed. I couldn't help but think, that's just a small glimpse of what's going on around us. How many of us have had feelings like that before? Or, you know, maybe it's not, I don't have a dad around, but maybe you're lacking something else. So many young people and so many adults wandering around like lost sheep without a shepherd. That's where we are. So what's the solution? That, that sort of hurts, right? And now you can sort of, that gut, like, I, I don't like hearing stories like that. Neither does Jesus. That's why he's looking at those people saying, this isn't right. What's the solution? What does Jesus say? Well, Jesus says this, hey, disciples, let's load up some camels. We've got a traveling ministry. I need to go set up at all arenas, hillsides, temples, as many as possible. John, let's get the word out. Can you tweet a few things? Put something on Facebook here. Peter, James, John, you guys sell tickets. We've got to get as many people here so they can hear me. Is that what Jesus did? No, instead of taking this upon himself and Jesus saying, well, yes, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. But Jesus says, but you know what? I need all of you to be involved in this. I need each and every one of you. Instead of taking it upon himself, he looks at the disciples. He looks at the fields around him. And he says, the harvest is great. Do me a favor. Everybody just sort of, I don't care where you want to point right now. I want, to, I want you to point towards where your home is from here, okay? Now be careful you don't poke somebody's eye out, okay? But I want you to point in that direction and say the harvest is great. Go right now. Point to where your house is and say the harvest is great. One, two, three. The harvest is great. Okay, but listen. Because Jesus is outside with his disciples. The harvest is great. But then he says, but the workers are few. So pray, here's the solution, pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers for his field. Jesus saw the greatness of human need as an opportunity for harvest that was plentiful. Listen to that very carefully. Phil, I want to pick on Phil real quick. Phil, true or false, a harvest is a good thing. True or false? True. Ask anybody who goes out into a field, into their garden, and say, it's harvest time. They probably have a smile on their face. It's harvest time. That's a good thing. Jesus wasn't overwhelmed with this. He wasn't depressed about the negative mess. 
Oh yeah, he had passion and compassion. He didn't see sin as conquering, defeating him. He saw around him a harvest. Like a farmer looking at a field full of grain. A large yield. Jim Moden looking at his garden. You know, tomatoes and all those, right? right? What we might see as overwhelming, Jesus saw as a blessing. Harvest, ripe. I could see Jesus looking out at the people, stomach turned, compassion, saying these people are like sheep without a shepherd. But I could see him sort of smile, maybe shake his head, look at the disciples and say, the harvest is ripe. What a blessing, what an opportunity. Let me ask you this, because this happens to me. Have you ever walked into a lunchroom at a junior high or high school and feel a little bit intimidated? How about uh, walking into a, a, in front of a school, a school assembly with a microphone right there, walking up to it? A little bit nerve-wracking? You ever stand in front of 120 football players and their coaching staff with a Bible and you've got 30 minutes? Nerve-wracking, anxious, intimidating, exhausting? Yes, somewhat. But you know what I think Jesus would say if you did this? You put Jesus in front of a microphone in front of a high school, junior high. You put him in front of a, a team. He doesn't need the Bible. He's got it all right here, right? I think these are the first words out of Jesus' mouth. Yeah! Oh, really? I got some frowny faces going on. The harvest is ripe, and I could see Jesus is looking out and saying, Sheep without a shepherd, oh, this is going to be a great harvest. How many times have we sat at a Friday night football game and look at both bleachers? What did you see? A bunch of fans, a bunch of screaming sport fanatics, right? Or did you see a harvest that was ripe? When you walk into Walmart and you see all those cars parked outside Walmart, and you think, I can't find a parking spot, or you ever think about the harvest is ripe? It's a harvest that needs laborers, though. See, the good of a harvest can go to waste if there are no laborers to take care of the abundance, right? Jesus warned that opportunities to meet human need is great, but it brings people into his kingdom, but it could be wasted because of the shortage of laborers. It's awesome to have a great big field full of crops, but if you don't have people to bring them in, then it's wasted. Good farmer knows that he doesn't get help, the crops are going to spoil in the field. So what's the answer? What does Jesus say? He says, pray. Let me hear you say, pray. Since the harvest belongs to the Lord of the harvest, we're commanded to pray that he will compel workers to reap the harvest. We need children's workers. So we pray. We put in the bulletin and we ask. We need youth leaders. So we pray. And we put in the bulletin and we ask. We need people to help set up chairs at church and be part of a setup team. So we, we pray and we ask people to help out. See, those are opportunities. They're not chores and not burdensome tasks. So for all of you who are serving in this church, whether it's nursery, children's church, GPS, setup teams, whatever it may be, you're out here, some of you are out here this morning with a, with a push room, sweeping off the bird droppings and the, and the parts of the nest that have fallen out and cleaning off the tables. That was not a chore, that was an opportunity because the harvest is ripe. Jesus knew that God is all-powerful and omnipotent. 
Look at that verse again. So pray, and look what the next part says. Pray to who? The Lord, who what? Who's in charge. God's in charge. Pray to the Lord who's in charge of the harvest. Jesus believed that there are many labors required for that abundant, but he told us to pray about it. Pray to the Lord that God would send out laborers. Charles Spurgeon said this, the Greek is much more forcible. It's that he would push them forward and thrust them out. It's the same word used to ex for that of the expulsion of a devil from a man possessed. It takes great power to drive a devil out. It would need equal power from God to drive the minister to his work. When's the last time you looked out into your community and said, the harvest is ripe. The harvest is ripe. When's the last time you did that? When's the last time you sat on a Friday night, looked into the stands and said, the harvest is ripe? When's the last time you walked by a school, drove by a school during the school day and said, the harvest is ripe, but the laborers are few? That's how Jesus sees it. Do we? Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians 13. If I could speak all the languages of the earth and angels, but I didn't love, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans, and possessed all the knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could even move hills and mountains, but I didn't love others, I have nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I've gained nothing. See, love is patient and love is kind. Love's not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. Love doesn't demand its way and love isn't irritable. Love keeps no records of wrong. It doesn't rejoice about injustice, but it rejoices whenever truth wins out. Listen, love never gives up. Love never fails. Love never loses faith. It's always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Church, listen carefully. When we pray that God sends out the laborers, we have to pray that we have open ears if God speaks back to us and says, that's you. Harvest is ripe, God. We need laborers. That's you. No, no, no. I'm, I'm just praying it, that you send somebody else. Maybe God wants you. So as you pray this, pray with an open ear. But here's the thing. If you, if you and I can't look at people with love, you need to start praying that way first. See, my helping hand to a needy world is empty unless love is the motive. People don't need more things. They need more tenderness. They need the love of Jesus Christ. I know we got a lot of places around this area we can hand out food and, and all kinds. We want to help people. But you know what? That doesn't matter if there's no love behind it. People don't need stuff. They need the love of Jesus. And we met here today for a few reasons. I'm going to ask the worship team to go ahead and come on up. One is we wanted to get outside and enjoy God's creation, okay? That was pretty simple. 
Two, we want to enjoy each other's company because we're going to have a meal afterwards. So we're going to sit around the picnic tables and eat, enjoy each other's company. But another reason we came out here is because I wanted you to see something different that we don't see inside a building. I want you to look around and see a harvest that is ripe. When you're inside a building, you've got walls. You can't see. Walls are down. Visibility is a couple miles. Well, maybe not so much with the trees, but you know what I'm saying. If you want to, later today, take a little walk up the top of Homecoming Hill and just look out in your direction where you live and just say, God, the harvest is ripe. God, I pray to you that you'll send the laborers. God, if I'm one of them, tell me what I'm supposed to do. I want to remind you that God has a plan for us to be part of a great harvest. And God's laid some things on my heart the last few weeks uh, concerning how to keep reaching out to people, how to sharpen what I do in ministry. And, you know, and I keep coming back. You know, we met with the uh, building committee just a couple weeks ago, and they're going to start doing things again and getting the ball rolling. And we know, True North, we know we need a home, okay? It's fun to rent out a building for so long, but after a few years, it'd be nice to have a home. And you've given faithfully to overflow, and then the money's coming in. But what can we do as a church beyond our walls, beyond a building? Pray that God starts speaking to you and saying, God, yes, our church matters, but what do you want our church to do in reaching others? In about a month or so, I'll share a little bit more what God's laid on my heart, how I think this church can really reach out at greater lengths. But I want you to know this. When we start doing this, the fear sometimes sneaks in. But if fear sneaks in, and God did not give us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power and love and self-discipline. That's the spirit God gave us. And so when you start thinking, God, you want me to do what? Don't let fear scream at you. Can you imagine Columbus venturing and exploring new worlds? He would have never discovered new lands if he would have stayed home. He would have seen new things. He would have stayed on board a ship and just been comfortable there, right? But he had to push off. He had to take risk. He did not let fear captivate him. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you, do not let fear captivate you. Let the Spirit of God work through you. I was looking through a few things about fear and all that kind of stuff, and here's what I would say. Pray that God's Spirit in you overcomes fear. I heard this illustration. A firefighter runs into a burning building, not because he's fearless, but because he has a calling that's more important than fear. A person afraid of flying confronts it, not because fear has vanished, but because he knows when he gets off that plane, he's going to meet a grandchild that's waiting him on the other end of that flight. Don't let your fear conquer you. Let your calling, what God's asking you to do, outweigh it and overrun it. Would you please stand? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're an amazing God. We thank you, Lord, that we could gather here outside the birds chirping and the winds blowing and maybe it's a little different than what we're used to but this is one of the places that you preached 
When you talk to your disciples, you're outside on the hillside, you're maybe preaching from a boat, you were at a temple or a synagogue, and then maybe you sat down in a garden. But when you spoke these words to your disciples, you looked out across the field, you said, the harvest is ripe, but the labors are few. So pray to the God who's in charge to send more workers. God, you're in charge, we're not. You're a mighty, supreme God, Lord over all. So we pray to you, send us and send more workers and more and more. Help us to be obedient to your voice. Lord, help us to look at this world not as a big mess, but a big opportunity for a great harvest. When we look out and we get so mad at what we see, help us to stop being mad and help us to be passionate with your compassion and your love to reach those that need you. God, as we sing this next song and we look out across this city and the other cities, we know you're the God of this city. But God, we need to proclaim that. We want you to be the God of this city, the God of the surrounding communities, the God of this state, the God of this nation. But we need to be obedient in sharing that message of truth and love with everyone. God, I thank you that today we can rejoice in the truth that you love us that you sent your one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, to take away our sins, to clean up our mess. And God, right now, if there's somebody here who's never, never prayed, never asked you to come into their life, Lord, today would be a great day to confess with our mouths that you are Lord, that you've come to save us. Today would be a great day to confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts love us, forgive us, and now you want to lead us. So as we sing this song, Lord, keep doing business in our hearts. Speak to us, Lord, as we sing to you. In thy name we pray.